Moms are great. Mother's Day is a nightmare. With the world beginning to reopen, this may be our busiest Mother's Day yet. Yelp for Restaurants is here to help you execute a flawless service. Contactless table management, reservation management, and digital waitlisting tools ensure your diners don't have to wait around in long lines in an era of social distancing. Empower your guests to add themselves to your digital waitlist before they even leave home. Provide accurate wait times and automatically notify them right before their table is ready. Let's get back to business better than ever. Listeners of this podcast get three months of free access to waitlist and $300 of free monthly advertising credits. Visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash Mother's Day to learn more. Now here we go. If you're starting out with a nonprofit, the first thing you should be doing is making a strong mission statement. We reached so deeply into that mission statement at the beginning of the pandemic to make all the choices that we made. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. What do Ryan Reynolds, P. Diddy, and The Rock all have in common? They've all partnered with and donated to Another Round, Another Rally, a nonprofit organization devoted to bailing out and building up hospitality workers during and after the pandemic. Today, we chat with founder Amanda Gunderson, who looks back on what was accomplished in the last 12 months and what the long road ahead looks like for both their organization and the industry at large. For the last three years, Travis and I have been working putting another round, another rally together. So we started it in the spring of 2018. And up until the pandemic, we had done a few things that we were really proud of. We'd participated a bit in like the LA Food Bowl and uh, Aspen Food and Wine and Portland Cocktail Week and some things like that. But we were really going to launch the company and hopefully start to become known to the industry last March 23rd. Of course, that didn't happen. And event that we were set to do was going to take place at a really fun event called Bartenders Weekend, which if anyone's unfamiliar who might be listening to this, it's a rad event that happens in San Diego. It's put on by Eric Castro and Chris Patino, and it's just a weekend really for bartenders. About 1,500 bartenders show up, and so we had one of the marquee events of that week, and we were expecting about 300 people at least to show up to this fun, fun event that, called Deuces that we were going to put on, and which is a really hilarious, fun, exciting, synchronized bartending competition. And so we were very excited about it. But about a week before that happened, everything shut down. And so we just went into fundraising mode. And here we are today, still in fundraising mode, still in triage mode a little bit, but starting to make a move towards everybody reopening and being helpful there. I want to go back to the birth of another round, another rally. What hole were you trying to fill? What did you and your partner see is the need out there that you wanted to help facilitate? Well, Travis was in the middle of a job transition and he had called me for advice. And since we really started working together, we both, or since we met, we both call each other anytime we need job transition advice, work advice, or anything like that. Cocktail making advice. Travis is a master at a punch. So we've leaned into each other for all sorts of reasons, but he had contacted me about some stuff that was going on for a job transition. And I had said to him, I've had this idea for a long time. What if we had a company that was filling this hole in the industry where I had just seen so many people in the industry in emergency situations without emergency help? 
there's so many people who work in the hospitality industry who are either uninsured or underinsured to cover real true emergencies. I had worked at a hotel at one point, and that was the first time in my career in the hospitality industry that I actually had health insurance and a fair starting wage. They weren't paying me minimum wage there either. And I was still making tips as well. So it was really eye-opening to finally be in a position where I was getting health insurance and so many of my friends were not. I also started traveling a lot as a brand ambassador and I started running into emergencies all over the country where you'd go into a bar in North Carolina and they were having a fundraiser the following night for one of their bartenders who just had a miscarriage or somebody who a bartender just came home from a long trip and got into a car accident on the way home from the airport or somebody had a cancer diagnosis or had a friend in management who was for like the fifth time showing up to the courthouse to testify for one of her kitchen members who was facing deportation and the legal fees around that kind of a thing. And so we just wanted to catch as many emergency situations that we could. But then we also were really interested in education and lifting up some of the people in the industry that are sort of overlooked traditionally into higher paying jobs. And Travis was really the one who came with the idea like, okay, if we're going to focus on education for folks and get people up into some of these better positions, let's really look into some really untapped areas. What's going on in the transgender world? How can we help people get a job security there in a place where it is so common to be pushed into some sort of homelessness or something like that? And how can we help with Black communities, Latino communities, anybody who identifies as BIPOC? What's going on with this fluid gender identity and how do people get seen at work and get into positions where they can get promotions? We started doing some digging around and one just jaw-dropping statistic that we found was that for every $10 a white man makes in hospitality, a Black woman will make four. So 40% of what a white man is making. And so we just started kicking around, what if we could get people certified? What if we could get people into the WSET? What if we could help people get into sommelier positions or really any sort of like the CSS or anything like that? What if we could help people get into management? Or what if we could help management understand better hiring practices? So we just started saying, okay, this half is going to be something we call professional development. And then this half is going to be something that we're calling emergency funding. And we just went for it. So right now we're starting to get a little bit more back into the professional development side of things now that we're all starting to open back up a little bit. The vision itself is beautiful. I am sure that the practical application and getting something like that off the ground was extreme, even without a global pandemic. Was there support for this initiative early on? What did it look like to actually create another round, another rally? Well, when we started, I thought, let's do this. You know, I was catching Travis in the middle of a transition. And the big dream was that we would both be working there full time eventually. I thought, we'll get Travis on full time by the end of the summer. And that was not even remotely close to how it works. But we always had planned that Travis would be the first one to go full time and that I would join later because Travis was getting his health insurance from his wife and I was supporting my husband with my health insurance. So that was something that we were very just in tune with the restrictions of what your health insurance can mean for your life, your choices, your family, et cetera. Travis is really the operating officer, so he's the one who really built up the infrastructure for Another Round, Another Rally. And we have had 
a number of things come our way or we've sought out a number of things that we're getting to a place, I think, right now where we've almost got our perfect infrastructure in place. But it's taken us a couple of years to really understand which programming we want to use, what type of banking we want to use, how many different accounts we need, what we're sharing where, how we manage our social media. Just all of it has been a lot of work that primarily has been done in the last year, that type of stuff. But in the beginning, we just were reaching out to people that we knew. So the first event we did was at a chef. Her name is Casey Felton. We did it at her house during the LA Food Bowl. And the proceeds went to another round, another rally. And the tickets were, I think, $100 or something. And she did a Japanese menu and we had a sake pairing. And we had a partner, a brand that was like, yeah, we'll send our brand ambassador over to walk people through the sakes of the night. And they donated several bottles of sake. And so it was really, really lovely. And then the next one that we did at Aspen Food and Wine, we did that in conjunction with some friends from Pernod Ricard in Colorado. And then we had Campari as a big sponsor for this diversity, kind of equity and inclusion in the workplace luncheon that we had at Portland Cocktail Week in 2019. And that one, we had partnered up with Jackie Summers, who gave us a friend rate to come and speak. And he gave this amazing class. And so we just really were leaning into the people that we know and we love, and we know that they love us to help us start. And then when the pandemic happened, I remember... It was like the Thursday before everything shut. So everything kind of shut down on the Sunday before St. Patrick's Day. And the Thursday before that, they had sort of made the decision that Bartender's Weekend was not going to move forward. And so we just kind of kicked around what we were going to do all weekend. And then on Sunday, when everything was a hard stop, the hammer dropped and everything closed, Travis and I stayed up very late with one of our members of our board who is, she runs a nonprofit organization with a $44 million budget. She's the artistic director of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And so she got on the phone with us. We worked the three of us together until about 1130 at night, putting together the letter that we were going to send out the next morning. And we timed it so that it would be in as many inboxes by 9am in their time zone as we could. And then we just started sending it to everybody we knew. We just sent it to, if they were at the top of the company, they got it. If they were a salesperson, they got it. If they were, didn't matter what brand, we just started reaching out. And to me, the brands have been extraordinarily generous. What did the letter say? I would have to look at it and see. I haven't, re- I, that's a really good question. I haven't re- visited <laughs> that broadly, letter. Like, but there's a makes, pandemic. Yeah. What do we do? Basically, something like that. I remember it being a few paragraphs long. I remember one of the details that we included was that our systems were designed not to crash because some of our friends at the USBG were having a hard time because they were overwhelmed by applicants and stuff right away. And so their system crashed for like, I don't know, a day or something. It wasn't a huge deal. And they definitely, I don't want to make the USBG look bad by any means because they definitely like pulled it out and got it together. But I remember the things that we thought about right in that moment of emergency, that that was like a selling point for us to say that our system wouldn't crash. But it's because our donation system is a function of Amazon and our application system was a function of Google. And so we were pretty well backed up at that point. I don't remember in that initial letter or not if we had said that we were intending to also make sure that we got money to people who were ineligible for federal funding, the undocumented workers that were uh, the power force in the hospitality industry, the unsung heroes that, that do the thankless jobs for all of us to function and be paid well and live our wonderful hospitality-driven lives. But I do know that initially when we first put out a notification on social media 
the very first day we set the standard that we never turned back from, which is that everything would be out in both Spanish and English. And I know that that was impressive to some of our initial donors that some of the money could be going to some of the people that might be falling through the cracks. And so I, I believe we made mention of that in that initial letter. And I don't recall, boy, I wish I would have kept a journal at that time actually now because we made so many decisions so quickly within the first two weeks where we had to say, okay, how much are the grants going to be? And I don't recall if that was in that initial letter or not, but we landed on a $500 number because we felt like it's not so much that we can't spread the money around a bit, but it's also enough that it maybe won't pay your rent, but it might keep your cell phone on, keep your internet working, put some diapers on your baby, put some food in your belly, keep your electricity on. The things to keep you connected to the outside world, those were the things that we could help with in feeding you or whatever it might be that you needed that money for. So we wanted something that was substantial from the beginning, but not something that where we would just only be able to service 10,000 people and then that would be that. So we did settle on that $500 number pretty quickly. And we held tight to our guns with that. And I'm really proud of us for doing that. We had a lot of people with very good intentions come to us and say, hey, we only have maybe $5,000 to donate to you or $10,000 to donate to you. Could we spread this around more? And could we specify it for the LGBTQ community? And could we do $200 instead of 500? Or could we specify this for undocumented workers and do 200 instead of 500 or 250 or whatever? And our response was always, yes, we can absolutely make sure that it gets to the community that you want it to get to, but we're not going to budge from the $500. You just tell us how many you want to pull out of this, and then we'll fill it in the back end with other donations. Because we really felt like you run the risk of making people feel like they're second-class citizens if everybody's getting 500 except for this one specified group is only getting 200 or 250 And we still wanted the money to go, to stretch for people as much as possible for the recipients. I think back to those early days, though, and I think that there had to be like these seismic shifts in not just the way that the business itself operated, but also in your own mindset. I mean, when you talk about like, especially in the first two years, it seems nice. I mean, it seems well-intentioned, but I mean, now you're being charged with millions of dollars in donations that you're distributing to tens of thousands of people. I mean, forgetting what you're doing in that moment, it's not necessarily what you signed up for, nor was there preparation that led into that infrastructure. It had to be overwhelming, I'm sure. Well, you know, we actually got really lucky. And this is the one piece of advice that I would say, well, I have many pieces of advice from things we've done right and things we've made mistakes on in the last few years for somebody who wanted to start a nonprofit. But one big thing I would say is that, and we got this advice from somebody that we brought in as a consultant in the beginning, is to really be careful about who you put on your board of directors. And by careful, I don't mean like be careful. I mean more like be full of care about the choices that you make because these people are the people that you're really going to lean into. And so we were very selective about who we put on there and we leaned into them deeply during those first couple of weeks. Like I said, Nataki Garrett is on our board of directors. She was the one who helped us write this letter. But we also have another guy named Jeremy who is basically a consultant for businesses that are going from small to large in a very small period of time. So for example, he might have a client like who say, you know, makes handcrafted notebooks or something like that. And Oprah puts her on her list of her favorite things. And all of a sudden, this little handcrafted notebook company goes to a multimillion dollar company almost overnight. 
And so he called us and he gave us that example as one of his clients. And he was like, listen, this is what's happening with you guys now. You're going to go through the growing pains of a company that would normally take two years. You're going to experience all those growing pains in the next two weeks. So let's get in front of the problem. This is the type of accountant you need. This is the da 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 We also, right in the beginning, we still hadn't procured a team of lawyers. And it was just really Travis and I, in that first couple of weeks, we just kept asking anyone we knew. We just kept spreading our net as wide as we could, even if it was people who were not in the hospitality industry, but that were good friends of ours for any question that we had. And between the two of us, one of us would always come up with the solution. And this one, I had reached out to my girlfriend, Sarah, who works in publishing and her husband works in like shipping. And so there couldn't be farther from the hospitality industry, but they of course love the hospitality industry. And one of her best friends, she lives in Atlanta. One of her best friends is the CEO of Planned Parenthood of the South. And so they're good friends with their lawyer. And so I just know Sarah is just very social and she just knows everybody <laughs> and everybody loves her when they meet her. And so I just thought maybe Sarah knows somebody. And when I reached out, she was like, oh yeah, let me introduce you to this guy, Lynn Fowler. And we met with Lynn and he took us on and he's amazing. And that happened because I said to her, we're working with Campari. They're going to give us a million dollars next week and we need a lawyer to help us broker this deal. We need somebody to be looking at the contracts and be, you know, being our lawyer, that which we're not. And so it happened very, very quickly. And he's been a godsend for us as well. I mean, he's just a wealth of information for us. And he was the one who helped us really, really put together the most substantial, robust application for the highest level of 501c3 that you could go for. And so we just got really lucky. I think one of the biggest lessons I learned during that time is that if you're humble about it and you just raise your hand and ask, you probably know somebody who can help you regardless of what it is. Working in the restaurant industry, there's always been plenty to worry about. And over the last year, cleanliness has been front and center in our minds and in the minds of our guests. Your world-class team and world-class patrons deserve world-class protection. Microband 24 Professional kills 99% of viruses and bacteria. It doesn't just sanitize and stop. It keeps killing bacteria for 24 hours, even when the surfaces in your restaurant are touched multiple times. And the EPA has approved Microband 24 Sanitizing Spray is effective at killing the virus that causes COVID-19. So you can achieve your most confident clean, touch after touch. The investment that you got from Campari, the donation that you got from them was one of many, 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 many donations that you guys got, many of which came from celebrities and huge corporate strategic partners. At any point, did you ask why us? And were you guys soliciting as much as they were coming to you? How do you round up such an amazing group of corporate partners and big name celebrities? I'm sure there are so many other nonprofits that looked at you guys and were like, oh my God, how do they do it? Well, I think that there's a few reasons why that happened. I know the first big donation that we got, I'm not at liberty to say exactly how much it was because we were part of a multi-group organization donation from them, but the first giant donation that we got was from Patron, which was amazing. And then the next giant one, we were getting smaller ones here and there, which I don't want to overlook the importance of those either. They all are just going to help 
more people. So it all was in the bucket. But the biggest one that we got right away was that first million dollars from Campari. And I know that they did a lot of internal work there to decide which nonprofit they wanted to go with. And I think there are a number of reasons why they landed on us. But one of the reasons that I know that somebody from Campari has told me that really stood out to them is that we put everything up in both Spanish and English. We had a little solar company in New Mexico give us $1,000 and they wanted it to stay in New Mexico. And we offered the ability to do that. We were able to do all of that. Now, it's one of the things that Jer, from our board of directors, who helps these small businesses go from small to large, it's one of the things that he caught right away and was like, listen, you guys are offering designated funds, right? So you need a designated funds accountant. Let me hear to my friend Lisa, you know, so like we got very fortunate with what we wanted to do being realized in a way that was legal and that we can account for now. And because of her, we can really follow where the money went. So on occasions we'll post just a transparency posting a map of the United States with the little dollars on each state of what's gone where, because our designated funds accountant is spectacular and she's really helped us get those monies where they need to be. So some of it was like that. We got another $15,000 from a distillery in San Diego, and the specific need there was that it would stay within the hospitality industry in San Diego. And we were absolutely able to do that. So sometimes the smaller donations came to us because they wanted specificity. And sometimes the bigger donations came to us because of our entire mission statement. That's the other thing I would say is if you're starting out with a nonprofit, number one, first thing you should be doing is making a strong mission statement. We reached so deeply into that mission statement at the beginning of the pandemic to make all the choices that we made. So choosing where the money goes, how we put it out there, all of that stuff. It was right in line with our mission statement when somebody called us up to say, I've got $5,000, but I want it to stay within the LGBTQ community in Manhattan. Can we do that? That was right in line with our mission statement to say, yes, we absolutely can do that. Not to say that we were excluding anybody from anything at all. It's very inclusive. But I think people liked about us that we were so specifically interested in making sure that the little guy didn't get overlooked and that it's such a part of our ethos and our mission statement that that was also helpful in terms of getting the donations that we needed. If we were to take a few minutes just to humble brag, what have you accomplished over the last 12 months? Because I know you guys have done a ton. Oh, thanks. We've done a lot of hard work and I have to say that this will be an easier humble brag for me than it would be for Travis because Travis has done so much of the work. I just started full-time at Another Round, Another Rally this last week, but Travis started at the end of last June. So he had a few people like me that were around him that are donating giant chunks of their time. But really, Travis is the one who was full-time making sure that the checks were cut, the invoices are sent, the money is going where it needs to be, that the infrastructure internally is set up so that we don't have to spend 30 hours a week just deciding who gets groceries from the grocery program and stuff like that. He really set up a strong vetting thing. And remind me, I'll tell you also, that reminds me of an interesting story of something that happened to us with some kids from Stanford. So we'll paperclip that and I'll come back to it. But we have right now, we've given away almost $2 million. 1.75 million is where we're at. We've given away about 700,000 of that. We got a grant from Hennessy to give away to people of color in the front of house specifically. 
the other million we've done, half of that has gone to undocumented workers. So that's something that we're very proud of. We also have started a number of campaigns. So we have one that is for Black mental health, which if you're listening and you've applied for that, please check your email because you probably have an acceptance there in the email. So be on the lookout for that. We have a fund that is for Black-owned businesses. We have a professional development program that is for women and femmes and people who identify as such in the industry. We have an LGBTQ fund that's specific there. We've given out about $250,000 in the last year, non-COVID related emergency funding. So we, for example, just hit the $60,000 mark on a GoFundMe style campaign that we had done for somebody in our industry who had a pancreatic cancer diagnosis over the summer. And so we've done a number of other bits of funding in that same vein as well. And then we've also been able to do some GoFundMe style campaign work specifically for a number of restaurants and bars across the country, which is good because every state has its own different laws. I don't want to speak to what they are because I really don't know in terms of tax law, but I do know that the fine print on GoFundMe me says that you should check with a tax lawyer before you start a GoFundMe. And for us, because we're a 501c3, it's a little bit of an easier way of getting your money and then not being maybe surprised the following year when you get a $40,000 bill from the government or whatever it is for all of that money that you raised for your to salvage your restaurant. So we were trying to catch as many of those people as we could from the beginning. So there's been a ton of different campaigns that we have run throughout the year that have been really spectacular. And we're about to relaunch the tip jar again. So people who have applied, keep an eye out. You should be receiving an email that says, if you are still in need, click here to reapply, because we do have another big flow of money coming in from the last big endorsement. We got a fair amount of money from Diageo, um, Ryan Reynolds, and um, P. Diddy, and David Beckham got on board to donate, not just to us, but to our friends at the Benevolent Fund in Canada and our friends at the Drake's Trust in the UK. That's that's absolutely incredible. Let's pull that paperclip. So what happened with those students? So this was another thing that is just like, boy, this one was just like a really luck of the draw kind of a thing for us. But it was in the beginning, we were really sticking to our guns that we wanted to give this money to people who are ineligible for federal funding. And we were having a little bit of trouble because right away in the beginning, somebody brought up to us that people are a little afraid of applying for that funding because they thought that maybe because we were so new, they thought that maybe we were a scam from ICE. So we had to, we had a lot of work to do to build up trust there. We had a whole section of Spanish speaking volunteers. We had to sort out what to do with the application because in order to make it feel safe, we moved it to the phone. And just to give you an example, in about two hours on the regular application process, and by regular, I mean taken over the computer, on the English-speaking side, our vetting team could go through about a 1,000 applications in two hours. Each volunteer could do that. On the Spanish-speaking side, because it was phone calls, we would maybe get about three or four of them in an hour. And so we just really needed some help there. And we just couldn't figure out what to do. We were banging our heads against a wall. And then this young man from the business school getting his MBA at Stanford reached out to us and he said, my professor has tasked us with finding a nonprofit that we can help that is focused on COVID relief. 
And my group and I would like to find a nonprofit that is focused on undocumented workers during COVID. And we stumbled upon your organization and we were like, yes, can you get on a call tomorrow? <laughs> and so <laughs> we pitched them really hard. We were like, this is who we are. This is what we do. This is what we need. Da, 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 da. And we really obviously liked them and what they were doing. And they just swooped in with their little capes and by the end of June, we had given out half a million dollars to undocumented workers, and they just really helped build out a piece of the infrastructure that we continue to use to this day across the whole entire organization. So they were just wonderful for us. I mean, that was really a like, put it out in the universe, like you build it and they will come kind of a thing because we were in the process of just really banging our heads against a wall. We had tried so many things and it was very emotional work for those volunteers too, to be taking those phone calls. And we moved it to a, leave a messaging system. And there was a way of like vetting the messages. And those guys from Stanford came in, there was about six of them on that team of students. And they really just whipped that side of our program into shape. And they really are the reason why we were able to give that money out. It was remarkable. I can only imagine that through this process, you have witnessed so much hope and so much tragedy at the same time. I wonder, this is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I do like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. I feel like your experience puts you in a really unique position to offer that advice or those words of encouragement because of everything you've seen over the last 12 months. Is there anything you would like to share? I have so many things I would like to share, but I think the first one I would say is that we are members of a group of people, an industry of people who are not just hospitable and not just the keepers of great memories for people and not just the place where people can go to find safety, but we're also the most creative industry, I think, on the planet. I feel like, except for maybe, I don't know, a fine arts or something like that, but I feel like actually a lot of people in the hospitality industry also do that to have the time that they need to supplement their other artwork. But I feel like we have, as an industry, shown an un reasonable amount of creativity and love and support and resilience and shine and just everything for each other in the last year. And I do truly deeply believe that when we come back online, we will be a far better industry than we were before. I think there's a lot of talk right now about how do we make more equitable workspaces that we were not having that conversation before. There were rumblings about it. It was starting to happen. But I think in this last year, so many people in our industry took a minute to say, okay, well, if I'm going to be out of work, how do I make it better when I come back? And so I do believe that we're about to step back into something that is so creative and better and forward moving and forward thinking than we ever have before. So just hang in there. If you're so inclined, get your vaccination and we'll get back to work and we'll do it in a way that is even better than before. I mean, one of my favorite stories that happened in the last year, and I think this one stands out to me so much because it is just a deep reminder of how much we are a family. I feel like a lot of hospitality people feel like they're family with the people in their restaurant. And then they might feel like they're family with a chain of restaurants or all the restaurants in their community or all the bars in their community. And then they might feel like they're a part of the family. They're going to Tales of the Cocktail or whatever. And 
it is true. We speak our own language to each other. I always joke that people who aren't in our industry are civilians or muggles or whatever you want to call it, but they're definitely part of our language. And this is one of my favorite things is that we had gotten an application from a young lady who right at the beginning, she got moved into the critical category of needing help because she was pregnant. And there was a number of other factors that put her there, but she was pregnant and that was immediately losing your job in that state would put her to the top. So we sent her some money and she sent us a thank you. And then in October, she sent us a picture of her baby (laughs) when the baby came. And it just reminded me just how much we are a family. I've never met her in person, but I know her now. And I feel like her baby is my baby. Like, I feel like I've got a little, a little one in the world that is a part of my family. So just know that that's not going away and that we are going to come back stronger than we were before. That's Randy DeWitt. For more on FB Society, go to fb-society.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.